You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For December 27th, 2017, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. For this final show of a very tumultuous year, we're going to leave you with a pretty heady discussion about life cycle assessment, also known as life cycle analysis, or LCA. Like the Energy Returned on Energy Invested, or EROI, which we first covered in this show in Episode 7 with Dave Murphy, LCA attempts to give us a way to understand the net benefits of a technology or a process and compare it with other options. But where EROI just looks at the energy inputs and outputs to see how much net energy you get from a given fuel after you've invested in producing it, LCA tries to measure many other inputs and outputs of a much broader range of things within a much broader boundary to understand how beneficial a given process or technology is. Most recently, you may have heard about LCA in the context of a research paper from MIT, which looked at the life cycle greenhouse gas emissions of various kinds of electric and gasoline vehicles, including emissions that resulted from making the vehicles and their fuels, as well as the emissions from actually combusting the gasoline. An article titled Green Driving's Dirty Secret in the Financial Times, which apparently was later retitled Electric Car's Green Image Blackens Beneath the Bonnet, selected two results from that body of research comparing the all-electric Tesla Model S to the gasoline-fueled Mitsubishi Mirage, and then characterized the research as showing that electric vehicles can have higher life-cycle greenhouse gas emissions than conventional vehicles. But that was a cherry-picking of the research and did not represent it fairly, and indeed the authors of the study then wrote a letter to the editor, also published in Financial Times, explaining that, on the whole, the life-cycle emissions of electric vehicles are considerably less than those produced by internal combustion engines, and more importantly, that this will become even more so as energy transition progresses and we continue to decarbonize electricity generation. As the authors put it, quote, electric cars have the potential to reach climate change mitigation targets that petrol cars simply do not. Now, I'll be the first to admit that, like EROI, doing LCA can be a tricky process and can easily hide a mountain of sins if one is so inclined to do that. In my experience, it's misused as easily as it's used, and oftentimes it is misused to justify a prior position. In this case, a position of intense skepticism that for some reason has become quite characteristic of EV coverage in the FT. But for those who are inclined to attempt a value-neutral investigation into the relative costs and benefits and environmental impacts of our various options, LCA is clearly the way to go. It's arguably an art as well as a science, though, so one should choose one's artist carefully. So in this episode, I've once again tapped that incredible fountain of talent and knowledge right down the road for me in Golden, Colorado. Garvin Heath is a senior scientist at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, or NREL, who has done many LCA studies on various technologies and systems, including natural gas, electricity, biofuels, and solar. 
We're not going to relitigate the LCA studies on lithium-ion battery production in this interview. For that, you can consult the links to the aforementioned FT articles and the original MIT research paper linked into the show notes. But we will delve deeply into how LCA is done in this roughly 90-minute interview and discuss what it means and how it can inform our policy choices. So grab yourself a cup of wassail and kick back and enjoy this final bit of chewy, wonky goodness for 2017. Then in the news segment, we'll discuss a widely circulated article by Eric Holthaus on the potential of sea level rise, consider the meaning of Norway's recent decision to divest its sovereign wealth fund from oil and gas, wrap up the story on the largest lithium-ion battery plant in the world, and review the latest story on Georgia's troubled Vogel nuclear plant. But first, our conversation with Garvin Heath. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Garvin, to the Energy Transition Show. Hey, thanks a lot. Glad to be here. So we've discussed LCA a few times on this show, including our talk with Dave Murphy about the Energy Return on Investment, or EROI, in Episode 7, our interview with Kerry King about resources and economy in Episode 32, and our discussion with Rembrandt Copellar about the net energy of renewables in Episode 42. So I'm going to assume that we don't have to really explain the basics of LCA at this point, but I would like to start with a bit of a clarifying point, which is that while our previous guests have generally focus their research on the energy inputs and outputs of various things, your LCA research looks like it has actually been more focused on the environmental impacts of things, such as carbon emissions over the lifetime of a power plant. So that's a little different than just looking at the energy balance. So how would you compare or contrast LCAs that mainly look at energy questions like EROI studies versus those that are about, say, emissions? Yeah, it's a good question. There's robust literature on both sides. Actually, it was a subject of a proposal with a group, including Dave Murphy and Carrie King, to try to bring together lessons from both fields that had been heretofore really separate and bifurcated. They didn't even have the same origin, but they kept a separate path and yet share largely the same philosophy. I mean, you're trying to include all of the attributable inputs and outputs from a system, process, technology, product, and account for all of those. The flows you're tracking with the energy return on investment are the energy flows. The flows you're tracking with, if you're tracking greenhouse gas emissions in a life cycle assessment, you're trying to track those emissions. They emanate from the similar building blocks, which are materials and energy balances, energy use. So you're literally tracking the energy content of things as you go through and the use of energy, the expenditure of that for the ROI, and you're tracking the associated emissions from energy, but also the embodied emissions from materials that go into a product or technology they're investigating for life cycle assessment. So they're very similar. The philosophy borrows a lot from each other, and yet they've been separate paths. We haven't quite gotten the two communities fully together yet. Mm. There are some other subtle differences, but largely they're really similar. So apart from emissions and energy, is there also just a materials flow accounting that goes on there? Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. So the building block of both of these would be to have a good process flow of your system. So how your system is built and where everything comes from all the way back to resources that you get from the ground or the air or wherever else. Sometimes monetary resources are tracked. And then through to the construction of this thing, the operation of it, and then it's end of life management. And those are the basic phases that you're concerned about. Sometimes you can have sort of, you might say, cross-current flow. So you have a power plant that's having to be built from resources and then it has an end of life when it's dismantled and 
hopefully some materials recycled, you know, landfilled, et cetera. But then you also might have a fuel flow and that's kind of the cross flow, but you also have to track that fuel from where it came from. Right. And then its use and then the emissions that come from the combustion of it. Gotcha. So maybe it would be helpful here to take a, a little case in point, and that would be ethanol. So about a decade ago, when I first started writing professionally about energy, corn ethanol was being touted everywhere as the best hope for ending our dependence on oil imports and putting a lid on rising gasoline prices. And hot money was flowing like a river into ethanol production. In fact, I remember Robert Hirsch quipping that making ethanol from corn is a process by which a certain amount of energy in the form of natural gas and diesel fuel are used to create an equivalent amount of energy in the form of ethanol with the primary output being money from government subsidies. <laughs> but the corn ethanol dream didn't really pan out as hoped. In fact, it was pretty much clear to me then that with an EROI of two or less, in other words, it returned no more than twice as much energy as you put into making it, and maybe even less than that, some estimates said 1.2, corn ethanol was really a loser policy option from the get-go. And of course, cellulosic ethanol was considerably worse than that because it's so much harder to free up the energy from the plant. So even though EROI analysis could tell us even then that corn ethanol was a bad policy option, that insight got no political traction at all because, of course, the path to the presidency starts in Iowa. And now, lo and behold, a decade later, corn ethanol is no longer considered desirable because, surprise, surprise, it's a really expensive way to make a low energy fuel. So, if EROI analysis could tell us that ethanol was a poor policy choice, can LCA research on biofuels more generally tell us anything interesting? <laughs> That's a provocative question. Uh, <laughs> I think in some ways we have a reality of these fuels. We ought to do the due diligence to do a life cycle assessment and or energy return on investment analysis on this to inform our choices about technology pathways, continuation of the use of these technologies, advancements and R&D prioritization. Those are some of the things that life cycle assessment can inform or EORI analysis as well. Ethanol, so I work at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. It's a laboratory of the Department of Energy. I'm not a DOE employee, I'm a contractor to them working at this laboratory, but it is a DOE lab. And actually when I got hired at NREL about 10 years ago, I was hired to do a life cycle assessment on ethanol. Hmm. Since that time, cellulosic ethanol specifically, so trying to use the parts of plants, not the corn grain that might have the food competition but the parts that we don't normally use. So in some ways, they were considered waste products or could be certain waste products. I remember you did a study on Jotropha, right? And I've done work on Jotropha. Switchgrass, did that come into it? It does. And so now we're working less at the life cycle greenhouse gas emissions, but more of the traditionally regulated air pollutant emissions okay. along the supply chain. Yeah. Supply chain being another way to kind of conceptualize what this life cycle is. Right. So in any case, the Department of Energy has moved away from ethanol as what it thinks is the fuel that it's investing in as a research development topic. Right. And they went to cellulosic forms of ethanol, but they moved off of that and they're going to drop in fuels, fuels that are infrastructure ready, fuels that would require less of a change out of pumps at a gas station and tanks in a car and tanks underground and other parts of the infrastructure that if you stuck with an ethanol system, then you'd start to have to increase the ethanol quantity in a gallon. You'd have to start changing out other parts of the infrastructure. Yeah. So the drop-in fuels, I think, have an advantage, but even that is really tough, especially with the economics. It just doesn't pencil out still for the cost compared to gasoline. 
And of course, gasoline has had a really low price for a while recently, so it's Mm -hmm. tough competition. Mm -hmm. So there's a great deal of interest in utilizing existing industrial infrastructure to create these drop-in fuels. For instance, excess capacity in oil refineries would be a way where you might be able to blend in through a separate process, but then blend into the fuel product, some biomass-derived fuel. As well, you can look at integration into the existing corn ethanol facilities to get what would be a more infrastructure-ready compatible fuel that at least the initial indications are would be better on the lifecycle greenhouse gas emissions and right. the ROI right. than these corn ethanol systems. What's driving the interest in biofuels at this point? I mean, especially since oil prices have gotten back to being affordable and so is gasoline. Yeah. So, and why are we interested in LCA in the first place on this stuff? Okay. <laughs> so, two different questions and two different answers. Yeah. We're interested in biofuels because the transportation sector is going to be harder to decarbonize than the electric sector is. So, if we can decarbonize the electric sector, we're going to be trying to electrify what we can of the transportation sector, but there's going to be some components of the transportation sector we're not going to be able to electrify. You could think of planes as an right. example of that. Right. So with planes, that's not going to happen. You're still going to need a liquid fuel that's right. energy dense. Right. And so the way to decarbonize that is to try to, well, decarbonize that fuel. There yeah. are perhaps some routes still with fossil sources that you can in some fancy accounting ways, in some sense, reduce the carbon footprint of those fossil fuels. But really, you're going to try to move towards the biofuels. Yeah, yeah. Why do you do LCA? Because to think, especially about the biological systems, you, of course, immediately comes to mind, well, where did that carbon come from? Well, it came from the atmosphere because it's being sequestered by the plant. It's not being sequestered very long, but plants brought it in and now you're burning it. So in a very simplistic way, Ah, well, this must be carbon neutral. Well, that's not quite right, right? Mm-hmm. Because you've had a lot of systems and processes along the way that are required with energy materials, all of which have embodied greenhouse gas emissions or water use or other metrics that you might be concerned about. All along the supply chain, you've all got diesel trucks yeah. and shipping stuff around. Exactly. Yeah. So to properly account for all those things takes a lot of effort. Right. But that's the way that I think you can get an answer that's useful for the decisions that are being made about okay, do I want to invest in this product or utilize this product as a replacement for another? Is it actually better? Am I doing a holistic accounting of that? Is is that accounting then comprehensive and consistent in a way to compare to another one when you're making that choice? LCA is really a decision support framework. It's not really meant to give you a single correct answer about a single system, but it's more meant for that comparison. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's useful for decisions. And that's why it started to be adopted more in policies. So do we really think that people are going to make policy decisions based on LCA <laughs> results? Well, I, I mean- Because that's what didn't happen with the EROI analysis of ethanol. Yeah. In some ways, I think you could say that. In some ways, I think the research caught up to decisions that were made before that research was completed. Yeah. <laughs> and that's going to typically be the case, right? I mean, often mm-hmm. you need to make decisions or the science is going to be informed by the decision that needs to be made, but the decision that needs to be made before the science can be completed. And so then you're stuck- sometimes with an answer or a choice that maybe didn't turn out to be the best. Or the politics are going to drive the decision-making no matter what the science says. Well, absolutely. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't do science. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to inform those decisions. And that certain stakeholders will try to adopt that science. And certain administrations will adopt more science than others. And 
And so I think our role still, I mean, especially for me sitting at a national laboratory, my role still is to try to do the best science possible to inform these decisions. It is up to decision makers ultimately about whether they use that information. Yeah. But we ought to have it. And perhaps even if the choice is made that deviates from what the science might say, <laughs> in some ways we're at least informed. Yeah. Can maybe rescind that choice, maybe make a different choice. Yeah, okay, that's fair. So if I can comment on another thing that LCA is useful for sure. is technology development. Hmm. And so used in a pre-commercialization sense, you know, when you're doing your research and development on a technology, it can be used as a way to inform the development path and the choices along that development path so that you can, even in a multi-attribute basis, you can try to optimize. And, you know, you're not going to be perfect along that path and you do have to make choices, but it's helpful to know about in advance of final sort of stage development mm -hmm. earlier on about where you might have a hot spot to try to avoid in terms of environmental impact or where you and another thing I wanted to point out was that life cycle assessment similar to EROI is a philosophically similar actually uses a very similar set of databases and process flows and other things to track these emissions or energy use along the way it's also similar to techno-economic analysis or engineering cost analysis in that case, also, you want to know, and I've done this at Unreal, for instance, with photovoltaics manufacturing, you would want to be able to track the costs along this process chain. And with the way you track costs is how much the materials cost, how much does the energy cost that I'm using, or the water in some cases, usually that's small, but the water maybe, and capital that went into the machinery to then develop it to manufacture these right. modules. Right. Those are all the things that have the embodied carbon content or the embodied water or the embodied land even that you can track in life cycle assessment. So you're borrowing again from the same inventory, we call it, mm. the inventory of these flows, and you're just attaching the different characteristics to it that then you need to you know, appropriately account and sum as you go forward. But these things are synergistic. Right. Okay. So let's turn to solar since you've done quite a bit of research on that. In one of your LCA papers on parabolic trough CSP plants, you helpfully describe three methods of LCA, a bottom-up approach, a top-down approach, and a hybrid approach, which combines both bottom-up and top-down methods. Now, I know this is kind of getting into the weeds here a little bit, but I think it's important to understand because it potentially leads you to, I think, to fairly different results. So can you explain what these different approaches are good for and why these different methods are used? Sure, yeah. In the LCA world, we call them by slightly different names. Okay. Um, we use the bottom-up, as you called it, is called process-based LCA. That's kind of the one I've been describing where you're doing your engineering analysis, what's every single step along the way. You get into the weeds and the details. You try to track all these flows right. and then attach your characteristics to them. The other way to do it is a top-down approach. It uses economic input-output tables of the economy. And with dollar flows says, if I can assign a dollar to the different steps again in this process, then I know from the economic input output table, the $1 spent in the electric sector produces so many emissions because those emissions have been tracked by the government agencies. And I also can attach the dollar amounts and the flow in the economy through those. And now I have a unit of emission per dollar. Right. So that's the macro approach or the top-down approach that one can use. It's called economic input output. And the hybrid is where you might choose to marry the two together. 
in my mind, at least the way I practice it, it's a little more process-based, but you might choose for certain for certain products. So for instance, you've mentioned the concentrating solar power plant, that's parabolic trough. So you're collecting energy from the sun that's heating up an oil in a field with these troughs, these mirrors that are reflecting onto a tube. The tube carries this heat transfer fluid. The fluid and this vast, can be huge, solar field gets transported, actually moves into a turbine. And the turbine in many ways looks like a regular turbine, steam turbine you might use for a fossil fuel system, except your heat energy is now coming from the sun. Right. The turbine is a piece of steel with some other elements in it. Yeah. <laughs> but the normal process way to try to estimate what the embodied emissions are from this turbine is by weighing those elements and saying, okay, well, the steel had to come from iron, which came from the mine, and I know that system. And mm-hmm. now I'm going to assign emissions of that system. Mm-hmm. Well, the turbine is highly manufactured. I mean, it's a intense piece of engineering to create this turbine. Yeah. And you then might reflect on that and go, well, it's probably the embodied emissions in that turbine are a little bit more than what just the weight of the steel is that's in that turbine. So that's why in the hybrid LCA, we would make a choice. And the way we described it in that study was that for those items, components that were highly manufactured, where that embodied energy that went into this machine, this component, in this case a turbine, was much more than the sum of its weight of its constituent materials, then we would use the economic value because that economic value is probably more reflective of how much energy went into it, how much emissions and other things went into it. The economic value more accurately captures the engineering effort as opposed to just the raw material involved in the turbine. Yeah, exactly. So in our, at least in how we did this hybrid life cycle assessment, we then selectively chose, and the turbine's a good example of that, there's some pumps and some other things that we also chose where we then applied the economic input output sort of framework mm-hmm. as opposed to the more, you might say, limiting process-based framework, the top-down instead of the bottom-up on those items. So what drives your choices there in terms of what approach you take? Is it mm-hmm. just a question of where can I get the data or what's easiest or and do you have it- to make sort of a gut-level decision about what's going to give you the most accurate result? <laughs> Well, so here's one difference with the net energy analysis. There's an ISO standard, International Standards Organization standard for life cycle assessment. It's been around for a while now. The field of life cycle assessment's been around for four decades almost. An ISO standard developed around two decades ago. So you do have some guidance, but the standard is pretty general and there's a lot of choices of the individual analyst that they have to make. Mm-hmm. And so it does come down to an analyst choice for something like that. A hallmark of a good LCA is one that does both sensitivity and uncertainty analysis. Mm. And so when you have to make a choice like that, then probably you ought to be considering to do a sensitivity analysis about the alternative to that choice to see then if that choice was consequential. And then that can provide some insight about, well, how important is this choice or this thing? to my system and what properly, you know, might I do. And something that Dave Murphy has explained to me as well is that as this LCA science has progressed, there's more and more attention being given to being able to standardize on the boundary analysis aspect, right? The boundary of analysis. So there's got to be some way for the analyst to clearly state to the reader, this is what I've left in, this is what I've left out, and this is why I've made the choices I've made, right? Right, right. And it's exactly that boundary issue where 
proponents of the top-down LCA approach, this economic input-output approach, say that there's some validity and actually enhancement of the accuracy, say, of the result, because in the economic input-output tables, every dollar is connected to where it goes anywhere in the economy. Mm. You have all those sort of flows of the receipts. Mm -hmm. And with a process-based LCA, you're going to by virtue of the fact that you can't possibly put the effort in <laughs> to follow every single one of those pathways, right. you're going to have what they call a truncation error. And so when you compared economic and output-based studies on the same system as a process-based study, then typically the result, meaning, for instance, greenhouse gas emissions for that system, is larger when you're including that more expanded boundary. The challenge of the top-down approach is that the categories of the economies and divided into, I, I don't know what it is, 417, something like that, is actually relatively small compared to the number of goods that are provided in that economy. So you don't have an exact match for every single item in your inventory list. Yeah, I can see how that would be technology. an issue. Right? Yeah. So sometimes you have to choose and say, okay, well, I'm constructing a building and you know, I'm actually doing it for seismology reasons, I'm making it a lot stronger. And for, I don't know, telecommunications, I'm putting investing a lot more into it and on and on and on. But the only category I have is construction. Right. So <laughs> I can't really differentiate the, the building that's built to, you know, the low end of the code and the high end of the code. Right. Thing. All right. So geeks like us might think that LCA is in and of itself utterly fascinating, but I think normal people look at it as a way of understanding how to compare various policy options and well, they should. So you've done LCA on quite a few different technologies and systems, including natural gas, electricity, biofuels, and solar, as well as some meta-analysis of LCA on power systems. And as we get into a high renewables future, it seems like quite a few people are looking to LCA to help them understand the right way to compare things. For example, solar PV produces, you know, a, a number of waste products, and people are trying to understand how to compare that to other technologies. So can you talk a bit about what kind of insights LCA can give us about our various policy options as we proceed into energy transition, especially from a meta-analysis perspective? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions and per-episode purchases are also available. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. And let me offer a special welcome to the students and educators out there who have joined our new subscribers. A half dozen university classes are now using the show as coursework, with more joining all the time, so welcome. And if you're a student or an educator who would like to inquire about our unbeatable educational discount, just shoot me an email at chris at energytransitionshow.com and we'll work something out for you.
So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. In a widely read article titled Ice Apocalypse, meteorologist Eric Holthouse explained how the Pine Island and Thwaites glaciers of Antarctica are melting, and that they are acting as a dam holding back enough ice to raise global sea levels by 11 feet. That conclusion is based on research into marine ice cliff instability published last year by climatologists Rob DeCanto of the University of Massachusetts Amherst and David Pollard of Penn State University. The key statement in the piece was this. Quote, if carbon emissions continue to track on something resembling a worst-case scenario, the full 11 feet of ice locked in West Antarctica might be freed up, their study showed. End quote. And that is correct. But as listeners to this show will quickly note, there's a massive gulf of uncertainty between the question of whether carbon emissions will continue to track on this so-called worst-case scenario and the outcome suggested by the journal Nature's headline about their research, which was, Antarctic model raises the prospect of unstoppable ice collapse. For if you explore the DeCanto and Pollard research, you will find that this worst-case scenario is actually, guess what, RCP 8.5, which, as we discussed at great length in episodes 49 and 51, is extremely unlikely. Stay tuned to this podcast for more, as I'm working on a few more episodes for our mini-series on climate science, including one that will explore marine ice cliff instability. Item 2. Norway's trillion-dollar sovereign wealth fund, the world's largest such fund, has proposed to drop oil and gas companies entirely from its benchmark index. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.